We've got some big news to tell you about from our partners at Conservative Review. Coming this December, it's CRTV, a brand new commercial-free digital network featuring Mark Levin, Michelle Malkin, and Mark Stein. You get all of this content anywhere you go, your laptop, tablet, cell phone, or even on Roku or Apple TV. And you can have all of this programming for a year for only $89 if you sign up before December 1st at CRTV.com. But to get that special price, you've got to use my name at the checkout, Dace. That's D-E-A-C-E. So go to CRTV.com and sign up today. Levin, Malkin, Stein, all for $89 a year. If you go to CRTV.com today and use the promo code DACE. All right, before we get started with this podcast, we need to talk about something. Friends, it, it feels like the whole world can literally change for the worse overnight. You're following the news stories. With what's likely coming for our country, there is one thing you should do, and that's prepare. When you're more self-reliant, you're closer to freedom from any national crisis or job loss or economic downturn. But where do you start, and who can you trust? Let me make this clear. Building an emergency food supply to feed yourself and your family is a wise first step. And our friends at My Patriot Supply will help you prepare. Get four weeks emergency food supply for only $99, shipped free. That's 140 adult servings of easy-to-prepare food. Order today, 888-457-3453, 888-457-3453, or go online at preparewithcr.com. That's preparewithcr.com. Build your emergency food supply for only $99. Limit two units per caller, 888-457-3453, or online at preparewithcr.com. That's 888-457-3453, or at preparewithcr.com. All right, now let's get to the podcast. You are now about to witness the strength of knowledge. This is Steve Dace. Raising a banner of bold colors, no pale pastels. People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. Our rights are inherent and essential. Derived from our maker, that is liberty. And liberty will reign in America. This is Steve Dace. And this is the Steve Day Show here on the Salem Radio Network, powered by Conservative Review. We are underway for the next three hours. We love to know what you think, by the way, about what we think. Steve at SteveDace.com. That is the email address, D-E-A-C-E. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Steve Day Show. I want to thank all of you who joined us for a little uh, Facebook Live uh, pre-show video chat uh, about 45 minutes ago. If you missed that, uh, it's up there right on our Facebook wall when you like us, or even if you don't, you want to watch it, you can. Tomorrow night, we're going to do something we have not done before. We're going to try to merge these two things. We're going to try to go Facebook Live while we're on the air. And we're going to do an hour of the show tomorrow night uh, where we're going to do it on Facebook Live, answering your Facebook questions here on the show. So make sure you're tuned in for that uh, when we do that during the program on Thursday. Again, it's Steve at SteveDace.com. That's D-E-A-C-E. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. Coming up here in about 15 minutes, Daniel Horowitz from Conservative Review will take us inside politics. I thought it might be good, gentlemen, uh, before we bring Daniel on, to just sort of um, uh, let's set the landscape. Here's where we stand in this race with about 13 days ago. And I should mention, I, I have been skeptical 
In fact, I think my prediction on the Dace Group on Friday is that what I think will happen to Trump in Florida will cost Rubio his Senate seat. I have been pessimistic from some people whose opinions I respect that that Rubio is such a dramatically superior candidate to Patrick Murphy in Florida that he would be able to withstand a drag at the top of the ticket. Until I've seen some of the clips of the debate they've had tonight that have been shared around social media. I haven't seen any of these. Yeah, I, I may have to take that prediction back. Okay, I mean, that's, that's, that's Larry Holmes, you couldn't hold my jockstrap kind of stuff. I mean, that's, that's JV versus the varsity. I mean, Patrick Murphy's, uh, I mean, he's, I'm sure he's a swell dude, but he's out of his depth. I mean, he's, he's playing at a different, um, he, he's playing at a level that, that he's not, his talent level uh, is not accustomed to. So I, I can see now why several people think Rubio could withstand a potential Trump drag at the top of the ticket. But let's take a look, and first of all, nationally. Uh, Hillary Clinton leads the Real Clear Politics polling average today by 5.6 points. Now, to put that in perspective, with 13 days to go in the 2012 campaign, Obama led the RCP average by 0.9 points. In 2008, which was a rout, Obama led by 5.8 points, so pretty close to what... Hillary is doing now is the lead that Obama had in the RCP average in 2008 with 13 days left. The pivot point has been since the debate. So let, let's take a look the first, since the debate started, particularly the first debate. And let's take a look at where things have changed since then. There have been 44 polls that have been taken since the first debate, meaning the polling sample most of it took place after the first debate, which I think was September 27th or 28th. It was, yeah. Of those 44 polls, Trump has led or been tied in only five of them. And they were all from Rasmussen or the, or the LA Times poll. Five out of 44. Um, a lot of people are touting this IBDD poll, which has it basically as a, as a tie right now. I think Hillary by one. Uh, IBDD is actually a fairly highly ranked pollster at 538. They have an A-minus grade. They're 28th, the 28th ranked pollster, <laughs> which when you consider how many polling firms we have now, because 538, by the way, they, they rank even individual state pollsters with the national ones. So it's, it's not just the 10 or 50, you know, the, the, the people that do the big national polls that we follow. So 28th actually is pretty good, and A-minus is pretty good. However, the poll that has Trump losing by the widest margin, the ABC News Washington Post poll, well, that's actually the second highest rated poll at 538. So the truth is probably somewhere in the middle between those two. Trump has only led in one of the last five polls of Arizona, which is a reliably red state. And a border state, obviously. Yes. Yeah, that you would think would be very favorable to his message. What little of it there is. Right. Trump has only led in three polls of Colorado since June. That is a state only one candidate has won the presidency without in the last 20 years. Trump has led in only two of the 14 polls of Florida taken in October. And one of them was today. A Bloomberg poll. And Bloomberg is the third highest rated pollster at 538. So, there you go. Um... In the 15 polls of North Carolina that have been taken since the first debate, Trump has led in only one of them. 
Since June, only one poll of Pennsylvania has had Trump ahead, and that was in early July. Now, one place where Trump's trend line is good is Ohio. Of the 10 polls taken of Ohio since the first debate, six have had Trump ahead or tied. In fact, I talked to somebody today who was, uh, who was speaking with a, uh, a, one of the key, a key on-the-ground conservative activists in Ohio that said cons- Republican energy in Ohio is way ahead of where it was at this time four years ago. That would seem to be indicative of, of, of the trend line for Trump holding in that state. It would be odd for Trump to win Ohio and not win the presidency. That's never happened before in the Republican Party. But when you look at these trend lines, it looks like that is quite possible. One of the things I found, but, but we have to be careful. There, there was a poll put out, and I, I, I like Jeff Rowe. We don't always agree, but I like Jeff Rowe. I just talked to him today, in fact. But, but his polling firm with his, with his consulting group, Axiom Strategies, put out a poll of Ohio today that had Trump up by four. But again, remember I always tell you, look at the internals. Don't just read the top line. Look at the internals. I'm not one for the skewed poll thing. And we've, we've talked about that in the past. But I'm just telling you, if, if you've got Ohio in, in the polling sample that Axiom Strategies produced that has Trump up by four, their, their voter turnout is plus nine Republican. Now, the state was plus six Democrat in 2012. So if you, you're telling me there's a 15-point swing? But that's only in Ohio and nowhere else? I, I don't know about that. Okay? Also, the poll that Axiom Strategies put out tonight, of, or put out earlier today, of Pennsylvania that had Trump only down by three. Again, because you got to read the internals. In Philadelphia, they have Hillary Clinton winning Philadelphia 57 to 25. That may sound dominant. In 2012, Obama got 81% of the vote in Philadelphia. So you mean to tell me Hillary Clinton's going to do 25 points worse in Philadelphia than Barack Obama? I don't. I don't believe that. Okay. I When you see the amount of when you see what heavily when you see blue counties in Texas have early voting that's 57% higher than they were in 2012. When when you see that um that Hillary Clinton is actually doing better in the early voting in Florida than Obama did in 2012. I have a hard time believing that in Philadelphia, she's going to do 25 points worse than Obama did in 2012. I, I just, I, I find that uh, uh, dubious. Yeah, I think it would take an act of nature. And, and the way the, the Democrat ground game uh, works is that they can just cruise around the city, uh, open up a, a van and tell people to get in. And, you know, if needed, to keep the polling locations open later, as has been discussed before. Uh, Trump still spending money in Virginia. No poll taken there throughout the entire general election has had Trump ahead. Only four have had Trump behind by less than five points. And I don't think I don't think a Republican has won the White House without Virginia. I think since Reconstruction, we're going back a ways. So when you add this all up, this is a very tough trend line to overcome in the final thirteen days. He. he to me, it's a 10% shot. And, and I think you've got to catch lightning in a bottle. You're going you're gonna to have to hold Glom on to some issue that creates an instantaneous backlash that captures people's imagination. And then, you, you, then Trump, as a candidate, has to be disciplined enough to communicate and message it the right way. He can't do what happened yesterday, for example, on Obamacare. Because I just said a couple nights ago on this show that Obamacare and the latest reports, and that would be such an issue. 
Then he goes down to Florida, says people are lo- their rates are going up 99%. It's not 99%. Then he says, I, I'm looking at all my employees at this hotel. They're all on Obamacare. And his own general manager says, actually, none of them are on Obamacare. We either insure them ourselves or they're part-timers that don't qualify for insurance. See, that you can't have. Because that just fits the, you give the media an excuse not to cover the substance of the argument you're trying to make. So, but he's got to find something that captures the imagination of people. People are saying there's a lot of undecideds. There's not. Right now, polls are showing on average about 7 to 9% of voters are undecided. But that's more than we saw in 2012. So there's really not that many undeciders, but there's more than what we had four years ago. So that is sort of a general lay of the land. We'll find out what Daniel Horowitz from Conservative Review thinks about that in a moment. Listening to Steve Dace. Everybody needs a hobby. So, what's yours? Resurrection. He's bringing back the American way. It's Steve Dace. And we're back here on the Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review here on the Salem Radio Network. Let's go inside politics. Daniel Horowitz joins us from Conservative Review. And uh, Daniel, it's good to have you back, my friend. How are you? Hey, great to be with you. I'm really happy I got to take a vacation at the beginning of the week. This is the first time after a vacation I just did not want to come back. <laughs> Why? I mean, this is this is the land of good and plenty right now, my friend. This is we are. This is the land of much milk and flowing honey. I mean, why why did you not want to return? Well, because when I came back, I found out that you, you have to either be with Megyn Kelly or Newt Gingrich. I mean, pick your poison. <laughs> so the, 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 this is the extent of the discourse within the conservative movement over the last couple of days. So I figured, heck, I'll just go back on vacation. There was an event earlier today, Mike Pence campaigning in Utah. Um, stop and think about that, uh, campaigning in Utah in a general election. Maybe Hillary will campaign next in California uh, to rally the base. But uh, not a single elected Republican official in the state attended the event, uh, hell, which will be the only campaign event for the Trump campaign in Utah this cycle, uh, that was attended by his running mate, Mike Pence. Have you ever heard of such a thing in all of your time in politics? Have you ever heard of anything like that? Um, no. I mean, ex- except for when conservatives run. But obviously, conservatives never win the nomination for president, so that's just for Congress or, you know, down ballot. But no, th- this is something that we've never seen before, and, and that's why this notion that the polls are wrong is absurd. You, you mentioned something very important. You always got to focus on where the candidates are in the final home stretch of the election. And particularly watch the Democrats. Because say what you want about Democrats, they're good they're good with politics. They know exactly where they are. This is what we've learned from the two Obama elections. While our guys were dancing around on talk radio for two months saying the polls are rigged and Romney had bigger crowds, uh, David Axelrod knew exactly where his, their numbers stood in every county that was critical in the key states. So the Clinton campaign is dumping money into red states. So I'm willing to allow for the fact that Trump's map is a little bit asymmetrical, 
and it's not exactly what we've seen. So you can't extrapolate well if he's doing poorly in Georgia and, and possibly losing Arizona and maybe even within the margin of error in Texas. So then he's going to lose 45 states. No, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't think you're going to see that. And in fact, the trend line is, is moving up. But there is no way this man breaks Romney's scrimmage line. And I think he does much worse. What's much worse? For example, I believe if the election were held today, I think what would happen is Hillary Clinton would have 354 electoral college votes, Donald Trump 174, and I think Evan McMullen would win 10 electoral college votes and be the first third-party candidate in 50 years to do that. I mean, I think it's it, it could be closer to 330 or so. I believe it will be roughly John McCain's math, if not by state, but more just in totality, um, the total numbers, the counties. I mean, because keep in mind, Romney only won North Carolina over McCain, but he just performed much better across the board, across the map. So this is going to be within McCain territory. The one thing that I've noticed this week, notice it's been quieter relatively with, with Trump. You haven't had a major event. We're done with the debate. Notice he's trending up. This has happened in every single stage of this election. The, once the exposure to the Trumpster fire recedes, people come home. People don't want Hillary. I mean, that, that's the lesson from this. And this is why you're seeing if the election were held today, Republicans would keep the Senate. Democrats need to flip four Senate seats, assuming they win the presidency and have the vice president you know, cast a tie vote. Um, so they need four. They only likely have two in the bag at this point. And again, people don't want to give the keys to the Dems. All right, let's play this game out. I'm not as optimistic they're going to hold the Senate as you are, but but um, but let's let's play it out and say you're right. And let's say Trump loses and they hold everything else. The message of this election was what? A singular rejection of Donald Trump? That this election was a referendum on the character and baggage of Hillary's Manhattan liberal donor. Period. I mean, that's so. Yeah, it's a single, a single-minded repudiation of Donald Trump. That's what it was. Yes, it will have nothing to do with what is going on in this country. It will be. She will be an accidental president. It will be unprecedented. I think a lot of people are not appreciating the opportunity. Everyone's saying, "Oh, we're going to die if Hillary wins." Well, you know, we're staring down that barrel, that gun. You know, less than two weeks from now, I think there's a lot of opportunity if we if we actually harness it. All right, so let's say that I'm right, and they take the Senate, and Republicans keep the House. What's the narrative then? You know, I, I think the narrative then is, is, is the same thing. It's that Trump was so bad, he dragged down the, the Senate candidates. I don't think anyone is going to say Democrats, um, you know, have some sort of popular mandate. And in fact, I'm, I'm, I'm really, if you go race by race, it's really hard to see Democrats getting at this point because now Republicans for the first time have legitimately put a Democrat-held seat in jeopardy. So it could cancel out a loss in Nevada. Um, I mean, not that Joe Heck is anything to write home about. He's a, he's a pro-amnesty liberal rhino. But, you know, just pure R versus D, I don't see them flipping four seats at this point. All right, so I'm, I'm glad you brought up the amnesty thing. So if, if if we have an election where Joe Heck wins in Nevada and Trump loses, and Trump loses Arizona, which is a reliably red state, and as I just pointed out, he has only led in one of the last five polls of that state, only one. 
if that were to happen, and given his messaging, and you and I have talked privately about where some of the immigration messaging, how it has downturned as a result of this election. For example, the, the build-a-wall rhetoric was a 50-50 or so issue about a year ago. Now it's an 18% issue. Is the immigration issue basically just dead at that point? Just dead as a doornail. Um, well, no, I think there's a dichotomy. I'm actually running about this tomorrow with illegals disrupting the George Washington Bridge. Uh, I think people are going to be ticked because once— well, again, Yeah, but how many people? That's my question. How many the people? The entire country, because you won't be able to miss it, because it will be Hillary with her hated persona pushing it. Let, let me tell you, most people are not fixed in their ideology about issues. Let's face it. I had noticed Very that. few people are. <laughs> it's all about the persona, the packaging, and the vehicle. Right now, when things are packaged through Trump, it drags it down. But once it's all packaged on the other end through Hillary, it will swing back to the other direction. I'm telling you, that opportunity is there. But believe me, leave it to the GOP establishment and the autopsy 2.0 report that they're going to put out. Oh, they'll say Joe Heck won because he's for amnesty. They'll learn all of the Rob Portman's pro-gay marriage, and he was never even challenged in in the in the key battleground state of Ohio. That that will be this that will be the narrative as well, right? Oh, of course, yeah. LGBT outreach, you know, um, exactly. They're going to cherry pick exactly what they want there. Um, but I'm going to have a piece out coming tomorrow why this is the worst cadre of Senate candidates ever, and why it will actually hurt conservatives if Republicans keep the Senate. Daniel Horowitz is here from Conservative Review. He takes us inside politics at this time each week on the show. More with Daniel in a moment. You're listening to Steve Dace. Liberals seem to have a tough time handling so much truth all in one place. Stop! 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 It's the Steve Day Show. Back here with Daniel Horowitz from Conservative Review going inside politics here on the Steve Day Show. So, Daniel, I want to take you back three years ago at this time. And Ken Cuccinelli is down the stretch of his gubernatorial campaign in Virginia. And it's uh, he's flailed uh, as a candidate and decides the last couple of weeks of the campaign that that he's going to go to the wall on the issue that really made him a household name in the first place. And that's Obamacare. And you go back to the 2012 Republican presidential primary. Mike Huckabee had all the candidates on his Fox show one night to talk about their approach to Obamacare. He had a panel of, uh, of experts asking him questions on it. And then Attorney General of Virginia, Ken Cuccinelli, was on that panel. And so many people that were Iowa caucus voters watching that night uh, took a look at him and said, hey, can we get this guy to run? I mean, this guy looks like he's phenomenal. So this is his issue. It's in his wheelhouse. He decides, I'm going to make the entire last few weeks of this race a referendum on Obamacare. Mid through, midway through October, in the real clear politics polling average, Cuccinelli was trailing McAuliffe even more than, than Trump is trailing Hillary Clinton now. In fact, the final RCP average in the Virginia gubernatorial race had it as a six-point McAuliffe win. However, on, on, on election night, and I know Ken, I, I, I like Ken a lot, so I've, I've followed that race very closely. It got down to the last 2% of precincts. From, I think it was inner city Richmond, 
uh, where McAuliffe overwhelmed Cuccinelli in those last 2% of precincts to pull that race out and win it by only two points. Is it possible with the Obamacare news that came out this week that Trump could do something similar where at least maybe he couldn't pull it out but put off enough of a respectable win because of an issue here in his wheelhouse? Or are we dealing with a candidate whose personal intellectual capacity is nowhere near Ken Cuccinelli, so he just can't prosecute the case, Daniel? No, he, he can't pull it out. And just before we get to that, I, I, I'd be remiss if I don't mention in the Cuccinelli race, that October was the month of the government shutdown, mm-hmm. and he surged. And Virginia is home to the most government workers of any state in the country. So just as an aside, you see with this government shutdown business, it actually had a positive effect for him. But I digress. Trump cannot pull it off for two reasons. Number one, he doesn't have an issue in the wheelhouse. His wheelhouse is personality. And we lose on personality. That's the problem. He's going to get involved with, you know, have a fist fight with Joe Biden or whatever else. He's not going to stay on the issue. He mentioned Obamacare just for a day when that was the big issue. But, he, you know, he's eased off of it a little bit. Um, you know, what is it going to be, religious liberty? <laughs> he certainly doesn't care about that. And then there's the other reason, which is the, the cursed early voting. And again, put aside your... By the way, quick time out. You just mentioned religious liberty. There is a case right now in Georgia, which is a battleground state. Internal party polling has Trump losing that state by four or five points as of last week. There is a case with a minority pastor. It's like a scene right out of the God's Not Dead movie where they're trying to subpoena his his, his sermons. That would seem to be, a, a, particularly since it's a minority pastor and he's a Seventh-day Adventist, so he's not necessarily some rock-ribbed, you know, Baptist evangelical stereotype... This would seemingly be the, 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 the perfect sort of last minute wedge issue to glom onto to beat her over the head with, particularly since you're not going to be in a debate. So you're not going to get a one sided question about it, you know, in front of 70 million people, but you can frame the argument entirely the way that you want to. I mean, isn't this just a free swing at a sledgehammer with a sledgehammer, an issue like this? I can't think of a better issue. And the reason is look, everyone understands Trump ain't a religious guy, everyone gets that. But he has this brand of being non-PC, and he could take that ball and run with it. What we're sitting in and highlighting people's speeches and going over their words now, their sermons, I mean, this is right up his wheelhouse. Again, not from the religious perspective, but the politically correct perspective. But, but he is not just incapable of doing it. He doesn't believe in religious liberty. I mean, he has said a number of times the court sh- should decide um, when the homosexual agenda runs amok religious liberty. So that he is not going to take this on. And then, like I said, you have the problem of early voting. 12.5 million people voted, and we're two weeks out. So they are. Banking. That's about 10% of the 2012 turnout, which was about 130 million, is what you just pointed out. Exactly. And I wouldn't be surprised if turnout is lower, so it could comp- comprise a larger share. And that's, you know, within a couple of days, that number is really going to go up dramatically. A number of states just start today or tomorrow. So that's the problem. I believe Trump is going to trend up, assuming there's no other major event, because as long as his presence is not in the news, nobody wants to vote for Hillary and the Democrats. The problem is she is banking that lead. So even you know, even if he has a successful two weeks, what does success look like? It looks like no better than the Romney map, and I, and, and I think that is really, really a stretch. 
Yeah, I, I wouldn't bank on. There's going to be more Oppo dump. I think we all know that. I, I, I and and I don't know what it would be, but who would have guessed? Who would have guessed? Billy Bush would would play. A, I mean, if you had if you had a year ago Billy Bush playing an integral role in the outcome of this election, you're lying. Okay, so I, I mean, if if we wrote this election up as a script for a television pilot, it wouldn't even be greenlit on Freeform. That's how r- ridiculous this entire campaign has been. So there's going to be more. I think this idea that we're just that that, that Hillary's just going to ride out the next couple of weeks because that she's banking enough of a lead. I think we both know, Daniel, that's not likely to be the case. Absolutely. They want down ballot. No doubt. We'll come back. We'll take a look at down ballot with Daniel Horowitz here from Conservative Review in a moment. You're listening to Steve Dace. There's left, there's right, and then there's right. You've come to the right place. It's the Steve Day Show. All right, back here with Daniel Horowitz from Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. All right, so let's go down ballot. And I want to start with Paul Ryan, uh, because there's polling out this week that shows Paul Ryan is running into the same brick wall that Ted Cruz ran into post-GOP convention, even though in terms of temperament, um, you know, the the way they go about their business, even ideologically, I mean, Paul Ryan's Liberty score on our site's about 30 points lower than Ted Cruz's. I mean, these two guys couldn't be much different, frankly, but there's the same phenomenon. Following Ted Cruz's Vote Your Conscience speech, we saw his favorables with Republicans plummet in the days and weeks after that, and then eventually rebound. Now we're seeing the same thing since Paul Ryan's uh, back and forth with Donald Trump uh, about a week or so ago. And now there's even another poll out tonight that shows uh, Republicans trust Trump more on how to brand the Republican Party than Paul Ryan. So I think this is a bigger issue than just Paul Ryan and Donald Trump. We we've, we saw this a year ago. We saw this when Rand Paul, Bobby Jindal, Scott Walker, Rick Perry uh, attempted to confront Donald Trump. We saw their campaigns implode directly thereafter. So I there's a because there, there's a big part of me, Daniel, that wants to believe that a lot of the thoughts that people had about Ryan and Cruz is really just it's the election we need to win, get behind the nominee, binary choice, blah 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 blah. Except we had we had these issues when people confronted Trump last year too, before we even got into binary choice mode. So how much of this is just election year? My team, Team GOP, Team Red's got to win because winter is coming. And how much of this really is? There's just a large block of this party that just digs this con man. Which is which? You know, I, I think it's neither. I don't think there's a large percentage that digs the con man, but at the same time. I don't think it's a matter of just, oh, he's the nominee. What it is is people have had enough with generic Republicans. They've had enough of it. And and it's the continuation of people projecting their hopes and aspirations on a man where it doesn't exist, and we know it doesn't exist. I've spoken to a lot of people during my long weekend off. People stop me in the street going out jogging. Hey, Danny, what do you think? And I hear it from everyone. They think he is the quintessential anti-establishment guy. 
Now, you start getting into some issues, and they realize there's a lot of flaws there. But it's basically a generic question of do you like the status quo within the party or not? That's why I just think it's irrelevant. You're going to ask me about some of the candidates from last year, but I think not enough of them were able to break through and establish their own brand the same way Trump did in a way that it would disassociate them with Republican Inc., Republican you know, establishment. So that's where I, I think this is going to continue. Trump could go by the wayside and never show his face in public after November 8th. But I think the polling for Paul Ryan, except for in his own district, is going to be pretty pretty bad. You wait another two, three months of him capitulating to Hillary, he'll be in John Boehner territory. I don't think there's any chance Trump will go away. Uh, there is gold and then there are hills. <laughs> Uh, I think, and I think, and I think when this campaign is over, and I said this on C-SPAN yesterday, Daniel, I think when the full audit is done of his candidacy, I think we'll find two things. One, I think we will find the largest expenditure for the Trump campaign was reimbursing Trump. Okay, I think that's number one. Uh, him reimbursing his various costs, things of that nature. He is still being dramatically outspent. Two, um, I think the other thing we're going to find is an uncanny alignment between where Trump chose to spend money and where he owns properties or would like to. I think we'll find those things, too. So I I think there's I definitely think they will build a media platform. I don't believe it'll be an over the air network now. I think his brand is too damaged with advertisers because of where he stands with minorities and especially women. But I think there'll be I do. I think there's a half million people out there willing to pay Donald Trump 10 bucks a month for Trump TV. You betcha. And that will create an entirely new platform that will continue Laura Ingram to do Laura Ingram things and Ben Carson to do Ben Carson things and Scotty Hughes and this incestuous, you know, Ben Katrina Pearson and these, you know, that's going to need contributors. They're going to have their version of the five. They'll have their own thing going on, which will create a whole new rationale for the sycophantic brigade to line up and to, you know, and, and, and you'll get the adoring uh, throng of cussing grandmothers across the country that will love this uh, as the guy they wish they would have married 30 years ago and they live vicariously through him this will not go away you're laughing but you know i'm telling the truth it will not go away in fact trump well, trumpism and trumpism is not in danger in this election Con- well, see, conservatism is create his own platform yeah it, the media it, it won't it, let him go away it, you cons- know it the exactly media, conservatism I mean, is what's in danger after this election daniel conservatism is because what's going to happen after this election is the whether it's reince or whoever we wash rinse and repeat after him will be the should have listened to us 2012 autopsy all over again the media will help them put that narrative out because that's what the media wants the republican party to be then the alternative will be pepe the frogs uh, brigade and cursing grandmothers over here with trump because that's what guess that's what the media wants the alternative to be because you know there's nothing in between Pepe the Frog and and empty suits there, there's nothing there can be no distinctions between those two things and and so it's conservatism I believe that will be in danger after this election Daniel not Trumpism no the, there's two ways that the media damages conservatives they used to trot out people like John McCain as the spokesman for the right because he would agree with the left but the other way of doing it is discrediting the the right by trotting out a guy that embarrasses them. So your watch for every time Hillary's numbers plummet and Obamacare is terrible, watch for them to go to the guy, and he'll never miss an opportunity to speak in front of a microphone. It's a great relationship between them all. They get more viewers. They get to destroy the, the, the movement. So, yeah, I think this is well beyond Trump TV. I think the media is going to revert back to the primary stage. 
where he yeah, was me, and, and NPR's media watchdog reporter said they told said yesterday he had two sources at CNN tell him that they made over a hundred million more during this primary than they were projecting to make because of the ratings and attention that they got out of Donald Trump. Oh yeah, th- this is a double play for them. I mean, it, it is they, they could have their cake and eat it too. Um, have their business. See, typically, they and that's why they gave Hughes and Lew- that's why they gave Hughes and Lewandowski, and that's why they put them on the payroll. They literally pay. They see they, they, it was it was they wanted to have these people on because they're court jesters who make ass clowns out of themselves and make it even harder for Republicans to win. That's why they put them on the payroll. These guys are just out there willingly, just acting like court jesters, mascots, and 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 that's exactly the stereotype Daniel they want to put out there. And this is why we got to take our own destiny in our own hands. We'll do it again next week, my friend. Thank you very much. Take care. That's Daniel Horowitz from Conservative Review. We'll come back, have some reaction to what you just heard in a moment. You're listening to Steve Dace. upsetting everyone you know you're doing it right you are human tennis elbow you are a pizza burn on the roof of the world's mouth it's steve dace so chances are your current phone company is using your money to undermine your beliefs that's why patriot mobile was created to give conservatives a chance to put our money where our values are And to support a company that we know is going to invest our valuable resources right back into our values. Patriot Mobile offers nationwide talk and texting and high-speed 4G LTE data at competitive prices. And they'll donate up to 5% of your monthly bill to a conservative organization of your choice. So you'll get the same quality service, the latest and greatest phones, competitive prices, but for the causes that you believe in. So go to PatriotMobile.com. That's PatriotMobile.com. Or call 1-800-A-PATRIOT. That's 1-800-A-PATRIOT. And when you decide to make the switch, use the promo code STEVE to get the $35 activation fee waived on up to two phones. So, gentlemen, we just finished going inside politics with Daniel Horowitz from Conservative Review. Did anything stand out to you uh, from that conversation? Well, again, um, this uh, what you talked about towards the end of that conversation about uh, how true conservatives are going to kind of be left out in the cold, at least as the media and therefore most of the electorate uh, will perceive it uh, with uh, the establishment on one end of the spectrum and Pepe the Frog on the other end. Again, I keep harping on this, and so does Daniel, uh, for that matter. But yeah, I completely agree. It's time for us, uh, you know, those left in the middle, whatever that middle is made up of, it's time for us to take uh, matters into our own hands. And whether that means uh, we just don't identify as a Republican anymore or we start some sort of new party or take uh, another party over, uh, that's I think that rings true. I thought it was interesting that uh, Daniel said the real opportunity post-election is to lose the Senate. And it wasn't in any sort of burn it down sort of way. I mean, he was talking about the real potential to get something done is to lose that. And he didn't have an opportunity. The conversation went elsewhere. Uh, but I, I, that's not a, a topic that should be taken cavalierly at all. And I don't think he was. But it's a fascinating place that we are in when we are truly weighing and measuring if the best opportunity not just philosophically we need to get rid of this and hope for the future that right in the here and now losing the senate 
is possibly better. Well, I'll give you an example. I, I, and I, I, don't, I didn't ask him more about this because he has a column coming out, so I didn't want to no, right, have right. him you know, get ahead of himself. I, I'm guessing where he's going with this is, and we've talked about this on the show, I mean, when you look at the candidates who are, who are electable in this Senate cycle, by, by far and away the best candidate is Rubio. I mean, his Liberty score is, is, is at least 10 to 15 points higher than anybody else's. And in some cases, it's even higher than that. And so I think that's, I think what he's looking at is collectively, this is a, it's a batch, it's a batch of duds. I think that's where he's getting at. I mean, I just had a, I just had a gal from North Carolina email me yesterday. Richard Burr hasn't fought for us on anything. Do you think I should vote for him? I know a lot of people are asking themselves questions like that, and the Republicans only have themselves to blame for people asking themselves those questions. You're listening to Steve Dace. This is Steve Dace. Raising a banner of bold colors, no pale pastels. People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. Our rights are inherent and essential, derived from our maker. That is liberty, and liberty will reign in America. This is Steve Dace. And we're back with Hour 2 here at the Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. Coming up a little bit later on in this hour, another attack against your religious liberty. Don't forget, we want to know what you think about what we think. Steve at SteveDace.com is the email address. D-E-A-C-E is how to spell the last name. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Steve Day Show. Next hour, Worldview Wednesday, will conclude our series on why conservatives lost this era so we can learn the lessons necessary to win the future. Gentlemen, though, I want to begin. I'm, I'm not going to add any other commentary to start with. This is a clip that has gone viral. And this started to break towards the end of our show last night. So we didn't have time to get into it because we were on the air. But all day long, there's been plenty of commentary about this today. This is from Fox News last night. Newt Gingrich versus Megan Kelly. I just want to play this clip and then I want each of you to tell me what you think about it. All right, here it is. The Access Hollywood hmm. tape came out, which was not produced by Hillary Clinton. That was Trump on that camera was, talking Megan, about grabbing I just heard, women. Look, I just heard you go through this with, 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 with uh, Governor Pence. I get yeah. it. I know where you're coming from. But let me point out something to you. Sure. The three major networks spent 23 minutes attacking Donald Trump that night and 57 seconds on Hillary Clinton's secret speeches. You don't think this is a scale of bias worthy of Pravda and Izvestia? I mean, you want to know why Donald Trump's had a rough if time? If Trump is I a mean, sexual predator, that is... He's not a sexual predator. Okay, you that's can't your say opinion. That. I'm you not taking not a position You could not defend that it. statement. I, I'm, now, I'm, I'm not sick and tired of people like you using language that's inflammatory that's not true. Excuse me, Mr. Donald, Speaker. Donald, Donald you have Trump no idea dis- whether it's true or not. What we know is that neither, there are at least... Neither do you. That's right, and I'm not taking a position on, on it, unlike yes, you. you. Are. When you use the words, you took a position. So what I, think I said it's very is unfair of you to do that, Megan. Incorrect. I think that is exactly the bias people are upset by. I think that your defensiveness on this may speak volume, sir. My so, point to you so, is, as a media, as a media story, we don't get to say the ten women are lying. Oh. We have to cover that story sir oh, sure 
Okay, so, so it's worth 23 minutes of the three networks to cover that story. And Hillary Clinton in a secret speech in Brazil to a bank that pays her 225000 saying her dream is an open border where 600 million people could come to America. That's not worth covering. That is worth I mean, covering. You want to go back and through the did. tapes of your show recently? You are fascinated with sex and you don't care about public policy. Well, that's really? what I get out of watching you tonight. You know what? Mr. Speaker, I'm not fascinated by sex, but I am fascinated by the protection of women and understanding okay. what we're getting in the Oval Office. And I think the okay. American voters would like and to know. And therefore, we're going to send Bill Clinton back to the East Wing. And you want to comment, do you want to comment on whether the Clinton ticket has a relationship to a sexual predator? We on the Kelly file have covered that story as well, sir. I will no, tell you the I just want to hear you use the words. I want to hear you use words. Bill Clinton's sexual predator. I dare you. Say Bill Clinton's sexual predator. We on the Kelly file have covered the Clinton matter as well. We've hosted Kathleen Willey. Oh, we've we've covered the examples of him being accused as well, but he's not on the ticket. And the polls also show that He'll the American the, public is less in interested in the deeds of Hillary Clinton's husband than they are in the deeds of the man who asks us to make him president, Donald Trump. We're going to have to leave it at that and you can take your anger issues and spend some time working on them mr speaker thanks for being and here. you too and you too your thoughts on that exchange gentlemen they both sound like morons next question number one smod number two if you're newt gingrich you, you do not get to complain about negative media negative media negative media when you rode the media train to get to this point in the first place if this was principled at all donald trump would have never been part of that scam pouring himself out to every channel every day all the time and not wondering you know why are these people being so nice to me why do I get to be on all these shows? It seems like I'm being set up for something. Newt Gingrich has got to be the smartest dumb man on the face of the earth for picking this fight. You already have a women problem. Mm -hmm. And you go on this show and you're basically calling Megyn Kelly a harlot. What is wrong with you? Out of the mouth, the heart speaks. I, I say this as someone who, four years ago, I got, four and a half years ago now, uh, I, got to, I got blindsided on a cable news show. I was appearing as a Newt Gingrich supporter. Because um, I was, when he was running for president four and a half years ago. I got blindsided by a clip of one of his ex-wives doing an interview saying that Newt Gingrich wanted an open marriage. And he wanted me to engage in all kinds of... And this was, the, this was the wife that he married when he was... At, the second wife, okay? Um, so I have a little bit of personal experience being in this position. I think I maybe have a little street cred having been put in that position. Of all the arguments Newt Gingrich probably wants to have with Megyn Kelly, that he could win... I mean, in terms of substance, I thought he more than held his own in that argument. I thought he made some legitimate points. The problem is, is I think you're correct, Todd. The argument in and of itself is the loss. It, it, the Having it is the loss. Having it. 
it's a little bit like the birther thing that we went through with Ted Cruz in the primary. Although this, when you're talking about sexual assault, that's a different animal. But remember when I told you guys we've reached the point where I can't, the, the argument can't be won, so having it is the loss. Remember? Yes. So we just have to move on. I mean, people get so stuck on these things, glum, that that, that just entertaining it, they, they want to believe it's true. So even so feeding it, no matter even, you can't starve the beast. It, it just, it, it's insatiable. So just move on. That is this kind of an issue for them. I don't understand this strategy. I don't. It makes no I don't know why running. Why, why are they running against Bill Clinton? I, first of all, he's not the candidate. Second of all, we tried running against Bill Clinton twice. He kicked our ass both times. Both times. In the first election, George H.W. Bush got the smallest percentage of the popular vote any incumbent president had received in this country in 80 years. Taft, 1912. In the second election, he, he got the greatest route we have seen in the, in, in the modern electoral college, 1996. Why in the world, this, where this strategy of running against Bill Clinton is coming from when he's, A, not the candidate. I think that actually Hillary gets to play feminist on that. Oh, you know what? These guys hate women so much they won't even treat me like I'm the actual candidate. They want to run against my husband because I'm just a little woman here. You know, I can't do this on my own. You're helping her inferiority complex. You're helping defeat it. That's what she wants. Not to mention, I'd rather run against Hillary Clinton anyway. You're too young to remember this. Remember how we tried running against Bill Clinton? How did that turn out? I seem to recall tail tucked between legs twice. Remember that? Good times. Yeah, good times. Had by all. We had him. I mean, we got Jerry Falwell putting out Clinton Chronicles videos that, you know, all these people, the same Clinton body count stuff we hear now. We've tried all this stuff, guys. All right. It doesn't work. All right. So I don't understand why, why we want to replay this. I don't understand why a guy who lost his speakership because it was found that he was having an affair at the time that they're, they're trying to impeach Bill Clinton. And then his handpicked successor, Bob Livingston, also lost his speakership not too soon thereafter because it was discovered the exact same thing. I don't know why anyone believes this is the right case to prosecute. This is the right argument to make. This doesn't make any sense to me. I think people um, who have latched on to Trump and his campaign, I, I, I think they don't really care what the issue is. If somebody yells back at the media, no matter who that media is, I think it's rah-rah, uh, more cowbell. They like it. But yes, at a practical, sane level, why, why the heck are you? I mean, I'll, I'll take your word for for uh, what you said about uh, 1992, 1996. I was too young to remember it. But yeah, I, I don't understand. Yeah, two strategy, routes. Strategy. Yeah, we tried this. We tried this once already, man. We tried this already. And got cream both times. I don't know why Why anybody thinks we're going to do this again. I, th- this is the part well, that makes no sense to me. When, she, when, when On the issue, she's terrible. Well, but so are we. That's why. We're equally bad as arguing the issues. That's a problem. Even, even Newt. I mean, that guy I mean, has I, lost so much off his fastball, Steve, it's not even funny. Not to mention, I, I also, as a new supporter four years ago, remember getting immediate, remember immediate people calling me uh, about Newt's positions on it, Newt being for amnesty. And it wasn't right that we were going to deport all these people. And now all of a sudden he's concerned about speeches. It's a secret banker. This guy's been a member of the Council on Foreign Relations most of my adult life, okay? I mean, come on, th- 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 this is just the, the beneath the dignity of this man's intellect, what he's peddling. It's just, it's just sad, really. And, and so I don't, I don't know this. I don't get it. I, I, 
I've, I've tried to figure out the strategy. I've tried to see it. And it just doesn't make any sense to me. You're listening to Steve Dace. to define the modern-day New Age America. We're all kind of crazy town banana pants. It's Steve Dace. Another front has erupted in the ongoing war against your religious liberty, your first freedom. Jeremy Dice is here with us from the First Liberty Institute. We welcome him back to the show. Jeremy, I wish we'd stop having you on. How are you? (laughs) I'm doing all right. Thanks a lot, Steve. First of all, tell us again what you guys do there at First Liberty. Well, First Liberty is very simple. We work to protect your First Liberty, religious liberty, for all Americans uh, day by day. We're the largest law firm dedicated exclusively to defending religious liberty in America. So the case you're handling now, I, I've seen this story before because it's right out of a movie. I don't know if you, how many people in our audience know this, but uh, one of the top five most profitable movies of all time is God's Not Dead. It was made for about $1.1 million and it grossed about $40 million domestic. That's a higher percentage ROI in 2014 dollars than Star Wars, the original Star Wars in 1977 did with 1977 dollars. It was even more profitable than that movie. And then last year, we, or earlier this year, we had the, the sequel, God's Not Dead 2, and that movie ends with what I'm guessing is a preview to what's going to be God's Not Dead 3, where the pastors are subpoenaed by the uh, local authorities to have their sermons. One pastor refuses to comply. That's the character played by David White at the end of uh, the movie. And that's and that's that's sort of, I'm guessing, an Easter egg of where this is going in the future. Except now this is this is not uh, art imitating life, Jeremy. This is life Im- imitating art. Yeah, I feel like I should ask David White for uh, some royalties here. I mean, uh, Dr. Walsh is a, is a great uh, physician, a director of public health fired for something he said in a sermon after they requested sermons of him once they hired him here in Georgia. They looked at those sermons, and very soon thereafter, they they fired Dr. Walsh. Look, no pastor should be fired for something he said in a a sermon. But now, now they've gone even further. Now the Attorney General, under the watchful eye of Governor Deal here in Georgia, uh, they've now required Dr. Walsh to turn over all of his sermon notes and transcripts. Now, now there's a very broad definition here, by the way, that we're required to follow. Uh, he's got to turn over every document, every megabyte, every back of the napkin, including even those margin notes they may write on the side of his Bible to remind him to, to say a certain thing at a certain time. All of those have to be turned over to the state of Georgia, uh, and, and there's no subject limitation. There, there's no time limitation, which means all of those things, going back to when he gave his first sermons at around the age of 18, have to be provided to the, to the government here in Georgia. And on top of that, he's got an ongoing duty to supplement this to the state of Georgia, even as he continues to preach on occasion over the next couple of weeks during the, the months of litigation that are to follow. On what grounds, is, Jeremy? On what grounds? What, what are they claiming justifies this extraordinary action? Well, you know, it's funny you say that, because one of the things that they had said early on was that, oh, no, 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 we didn't fire Dr. Walsh because of his sermons. Uh, We fired him for for other reasons. 
Well, my goodness, if he didn't fire him for his sermons, why on earth is the government asking for his sermons all of a sudden? It, it makes no sense to me whatsoever. It was illegal for them to ask for his sermons when they were uh, when they hired him. It was illegal for them to fire him because of his, something he said in his sermons. And it's unconstitutional for them to now request a pastor to turn over all of his sermon notes and transcripts for, through his entire career. This is an incredible uh, abridgment to the, the First Amendment. So what's going to happen here? Well, we, we will object. Uh, Dr. Walsh was in Atlanta today, as a matter of fact, to tell uh, Governor Deal and the Attorney General down here that, hey, I'm not going to comply with this. And uh, if uh, the state doesn't agree with that, then uh, they're going to have to move to compel Dr. Walsh to produce all those documents and, uh, to him. And uh, if, the, if uh, he refuses, then the court can compel him. And if he refuses that, then the court can hold him in contempt of court, uh, subject to as many fines and sanctions as, uh, as you, may, you may like. I think it's worth noting here, Jeremy, that this is taking place in Georgia. And the, 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 the case that um, is referenced in God's Not Dead 2, I'm guessing, was inspired by what they attempted to do uh, in Houston, uh, which obviously is uh, the biggest city in Texas. These are two places where people have the, the, these ideas that uh, you go and move to places like this uh, in, order, uh, in order to live freely, in order to live according to the, uh, the founding vision of the country, that, that this is not happening in the People's Republic of California or in Andrew Cuomo's, if you're, if you're pro-life, don't move to New York. This is happening now in Texas and Georgia. There's a, at the very least, if, even if those are random coincidences, isn't there some symbolic meaning for believers there? This idea that, well, you know, we can just replay, re, retreat to certain Valhallas and enclaves or rural areas or suburbs and, and, and we don't have to deal with these sorts of icky culture war uh, confrontations. I, I don't know that there's any symbolism. I think there's an outright warning to people across this country right now. Look, what happened a few years ago in Houston we can chalk that up to be a singular city with a rogue mayor, maybe. Now this is a state, and it's the chief legal officer of the state, the attorney general, with the watchful approval of the governor. That Don't forget this, Steve. As you well know, Governor Deal has vetoed multiple pieces of legislation that would protect pastors like Dr. Walsh. Uh, and he is now, by the way, this attorney general that is currently in the office, his last day on the job is next Monday. And the governor has handpicked his replacement, and that person is going to be he he will he will follow the line of Governor Deal. What do you think he's going to do on behalf of pastors and uh, religious leaders in well, the state? Well, I of, thought of Governor Georgia? Deal. I thought he he vetoed a bill that was going to protect people like Dr. Walsh here because there really wasn't any evidence that this was a real problem, but was a made up conspiracy. Didn't he say that? Just I think in the last legislative session, Jeremy. He, as a matter of fact, he did. And, you know, I stood about, I don't know, 50 yards from his front door today inside the Capitol, and I said, well, Governor Deal, if you haven't seen something to indicate that there's a problem with religious liberty, I, I would like to introduce you to Governor to, to Dr. Walsh. Here is case one, case example A, for why there's a problem with religious liberty. And it's in his own administration there in the, Depublic, the Department of Public Health here in, in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, it, it's just despicable to me to have a state, starting with the governor and working all the way down, that is, is demanding that a pastor turn over his sermon. This is unacceptable. What can our audience do here? 
Well, look, I, I'd encourage your audience when it reaches, because I know it does, all the way down to Georgia, you know, they need to let their lawmakers know about this, especially Governor Deal, that this is not acceptable. Uh, the rest of you, you know, I, I spent the whole day today with Dr. Walsh. He's kind of he's kind of down about all this, that uh, the last time he gave his sermons to the state of Georgia, he ended up losing his career. If he complies with this time, he's saying, I don't know what's going to happen next. You know, just just pray for Dr. Walsh. Go to firstliberty.org slash Walsh. Learn more about his story. Share that with your friends. Read Todd Starnes' article today that he wrote at foxnews.com. And like that thing and share it all over Facebook so people understand there is a real, genuine threat to religious liberty, not only in the state of Georgia, but throughout the entire country. If this can happen to Dr. Walsh, there's no pastor, there's no priest, there's no imam, there's no rabbi that is safe anywhere in the state of Georgia. And who's to say that the people sitting in the pews are any safer? Jeremy, please keep us up to date on this case. And no offense, you seem like a swell guy. I wish we didn't have the need to have you on so often. But keep us up to date. Uh, Thanks a lot, Steve. Appreciate it. All right, we're going to come back, and uh, we will have some thoughts on this here in a moment. You're listening to Steve Dace. He's trying to keep us all together because, well, the liberals do it. See what you call insanity? We call solidarity. This is Steve Dace. So I mentioned what happens at the end of God's Not Dead 2 in relation to the conversation we just had from Jeremy Dice at uh, First Liberty Institute, and he sounds like a swell guy. But by golly, I'd like it if we didn't have keep having reasons to have him on the air. Yeah, yeah, I, I'd like him to be a little bit less relevant. No offense, I, I'm sh- I know he's got mouths to feed, but something he, something tells me he'd like to be a lot less relevant mm-hmm. too. He's okay? going to be your co-host pretty much next I mean, year. Steve. Yeah, I mean, I, <laughs> tell me about it. Something tells me he's like you know I was kind of hoping to do like corporate law and charge like you know eight hundred dollars an hour. Okay, that's why I was not make, this was not necessarily maybe what Jeremy was looking to do when he paid for all that law school and is still paying for it. But nonetheless, here's where we are as a people. Well, you go to what happens there at God's Not Dead too, and it's very similar to what happens in in, in Houston where they won that case. But here's how the movie ends, and, it, and that's where I think it's a tease to where the next one will go, if there is a next one. Um, and I'm guessing, given the amount of profit the first two have made, there will be a next one. But the little Easter egg that is made there at the end of God's Not Dead 2 is the pastor played by David, David White, or one of the pastors uh, in town, played by David White, refuses to comply. Says no. Uh, I'm, and... The clerk of court says, you understand what this means. And you heard Jeremy Dice from First Liberty say that if Dr. Walsh in Georgia, if he refuses to comply with this, they will hold him in contempt of court. And so the clerk of court there in uh, in the movie God's Not Dead 2 says to David White's character, you understand what this means if you don't comply? And he says, yes, I understand that. And I'm willing to accept those consequences. The reason why I bring that up in relationship to this case is, We are running out of time where even with the law on our side, we will be able to successfully make our case. If they're at this point in time now where they think they can make these sorts of demands on the church, then that means 
and and groups like First Liberty Institute and Kelly Shackelford, Hiram Sasser, these people are friends of mine. They do great work. This is what Ted Cruz did before he became a, he got involved in, as the as a U.S. senator. Their success level, their you know, in Alliance Defending Freedom, their their record winning these cases is actually pretty pretty high, pretty extraordinarily high. But the other side recognizes this. If despite that record, the, the, the amount of losses they have taken in the courts when they have tried to do less, in, it, with the, less infringements than lesser infringements than this, even though they've lost when they've tried to do lesser infringements than this, if they are still willing to say, we don't really care that we lost all those other times, we're just going to do this anyway, then here's what that means. And you guys tell me if you think I'm wrong. Because I, one of the things I am convicted of based on this election is to be careful about the, uh, the level of alarmist language I use. Okay? Because I definitely think that is where guys in my line of work, and I've got, and I've got my hand up here in the studio, I'm, I'm, I am nominating and convicting myself when I say this. Whatever role we played in, in this travesty of an election that makes me sick that we're going to lose this. Part of the responsibility people in my line of work bear is the heavily, overly alarmist language that contributed to an environment where people just sort of lost their minds and stopped thinking. Sort of a French Revolution mob environment. So I I, want to make sure you understand, I'm not saying this for effect or talk radio hyperbole. I'm, I'm very calculating. My temperament's very calm as I tell you this. I'm just lucidly analyzing where I think this is going to go next, okay? If, if despite the fact they have lost so many of these int- attempts in courts to infringe on our freedoms, and still they're willing to just brazenly take such an, an over-the-top provocation, like the one we just discussed with Jeremy Dice, what it tells me then is that we are rapidly, if we are not already there, within the next couple of steps, we will approach the stage where it doesn't matter how good our arguments are. It doesn't matter how right we are, how talented the attorneys are, how much Constitution we quote, they're just going to say, we don't care. Bow the knee to the state or you're out. It doesn't, there's no reasoning. There's no argumentation. There's no precedent. There's no stare decisis. There's no Constitution quoting. We just don't care. It'll be our way or the highway by hook or by crook. You guys think I'm wrong about this? No, if we see this pattern on the progressive side and the Marxist side, I think we just talked about it last week with health care and the, um, the huge demand they, they made at the beginning. They got defeated, 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 and now look where we are with health care. The same pattern they repeat in other areas of life as well. I think that's happening here. You're making the point I was making last night with uh, James O'Keefe. We aren't a nation of laws, as you say. We are a nation of a will, political will, and we do yeah. not have the will. More in a moment. You're listening to Steve Dace. Trying to trick the libs with the truth. Hey, I'm not falling. 
going for that. It's Steve Day. Now for something completely different. We need to have a talk about an excursus on natural theology. I prefer metaphysics to theology. You see, there's no guild in baseball. What in the wide, wide world of sports is going on here? Can we talk about something else? Certain aspects of his culture may seem absurd, perhaps even offensive. We have cut the culture crap and get to the hotel. We gotta get some buzz going. All right, let's get caught up on some of the headlines we don't have time to get to during the rest of the course of this show. That's called the Nightly Buzz. Thanks to what our producer Aaron has discovered is uh, trending on your social media at your water cooler at work. He's got those headlines. We've got the hot takes. Thank you, Steve. First story, this is from the United Kingdom via LifeSite News. The parents of a 14-year-old girl are horrified that social workers are accusing them of neglect and fear that she could be taken away from them in November unless they agree to let her live as a boy. The girl was homeschooled along with two other children until last year, but within months of attending the local public school, she began wearing boys' clothes and wanted to be called Gary. She ran away and was returned to her parents, but with the social workers now on the case, the daughter is insisting the parents accede to her wishes. How young is this, sh- is this girl? 14 years old. 14. Well, Todd, this is a bit of a trickier situation, obviously, because um, I would guess she is uh, a pubescent or post-pubescent by the age of 14, so we're not talking about a four, five, six, seven-year-old, but she is still a minor. But, um, but this is... This is this is the debate you run into when when you have uh, the premise. Uh, who was the one the gal who used to be the crazy the gal? Well, that doesn't narrow it down. But the really crazy gal that used to own that have the show on MSNBC, who um, who mocked notions that uh, children belong to their parents, but instead oh, they belong to the state. Tampon earrings, lady. Yes, that, yeah, um, no, yeah. Who the, who claimed that MSNBC was racist? Right. Yeah. That that that's the why she had to go, or she got fired, or not renewed. Is uh, they weren't race baiting enough Melissa for her. Harris Perry. Yeah, there yes, she yes. Is. When, when when that mindset though becomes embedded into the state, then that's going to encourage these sorts of moral dilemmas, if not enable them. Well, I'm going to drop some knowledge on the reason and science crowd. The science says that most. Kids who feel this way grow out of it, just like they grow out a lot of crazy teenage crap. That's the science. That's not my opinion. So stop forcing this insanity on children so you can pretend the world is fat, flat and feel pretty in whatever dress you're wearing. Stop. Next story, two Italian mafia networks are trading ISIS black market weapons from Russia to obtain antiquities the terrorists are looting from the Middle East. This is from the artnewspaper.com. That means uh, the widely viewed videos displaying ISIS's acts of cultural destruction are likely uh, propagandistic. Who would have known? It's a cover meant to portray ISIS as more religiously pure than they actually are. Many of the objects destroyed on a well-publicized ISIS propaganda video from last year were actually plaster reproductions for example, in truth, it appears ISIS would uh, rather sell than purge infidel works. This suggests money and power means more to ISIS leaders than religious purity they sell to potential recruits. And I don't know how much 
either of you care about the uh, destruction of, of historical landmarks and artifacts, uh, some of which are meaningful to the Christian faith, but it is insane how much, uh, how much ISIS, how much destruction ISIS has done to history in the Middle East. I'm more, uh, this particular story, I'm more interested in, what was the Russian angle to this story? Uh, so the Italian maf- mafia is buying uh, weapons from Russia and trading them to ISIS via the black market for in uh, trade for these antiques. And and the Republicans have nominated a, a Russian fanboy. Yeah. That's my hot take. I was struck when I heard about this story. And well, first of all, we know that there's amazing contradictions in many faiths. In this faith, there are people who will martyr themselves by strapping bombs to themselves, turning airplanes into bombs in the name of their faith. So there's a level of deep belief on some of Well, the day before, they were all sitting around watching porn. Uh, so those contradictions <laughs> also carry over to, listen... Uh, let's let's not let Christendom get away with it. When I you you put in Christian in replace of Muslim and the specifics of certain sellouts, we 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 talk about the church these days and making sellouts like this all the time. The, 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 look at the the those that we thought were perhaps the most faithful, the vanguard against something like Donald Trump, and were the very people who gave us Donald Trump. It's not just a them problem. Uh, I I always look at the playoff picture in the NFL way too early. We're headed into week eight here. In the AFC, the Patriots, Raiders, Chiefs, Broncos, Steelers, and Texans would make it in. In the NFC, the Cowboys, Vikings, Eagles, Packers, Seahawks, and Falcons would make it into the playoffs. Anything surprising there so far? And I keep forgetting the NFL is not popular anymore. Why am I talking about that? <laughs> um, I don't know that I'm surprised really by anything. It's it's early yet. Um, you know, maybe the one thing I'm surprised about, Todd, is that I, 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 for a moment, was surprised at how well the Patriots did even without Tom Brady. And what I mean by I was surprised by my surprise, it's Bill Belichick. I should have mm-hmm. known better. I have a mean, chip on their t- shoulder, too. Uh, you know, who was the guy the, the year that Brady blew out his knee and they went 11-5? and f- Yeah, Matt Castle. They went 11-5 and five with Matt Castle as a quarterback. You know, so, and that's not to take anything away from, from, Brady, from Brady's greatness, but, um, you know, there's a reason he was, and I say this as a, as a Michigan fan, there's a reason he was a sixth-round pick, all right? There's, there's a reason why every team, including the Patriots, passed on him so many times. Um, now, of course, he's put. To, he's still had to deliver, and he's put together a resume that puts him in the conversation for greatest quarterbacks of all time. But but let's not kid ourselves. The straw that stirs the drink here is Bill Belichick. He's name, the constant. Na- name five New, New England Patriot defensive players. Name five. I can't name five Patriot players, I, period. Yeah, I mean, you know, so... But other than that, no, not really. I think they're the class of the league. I think the NFC is wide wide open. I, I could make a case for four, five, six teams to come out of the NFC top. The Vikings up until last week, they were they surprised me doing what they did with, and I don't think it's going to last, but it was still a pleasant surprise to not cave after what happened to them. Agreed. You're listening to Steve Dace. He 
He's standing up for your rights and telling you the way it is. This man is an American hero. Steve Dace. All right, back here on the Steve Dace Show, powered by Conservative Review. Coming up next hour, we're going to conclude our series on why conservatives lost. Why we lost this era so that we can learn the lessons necessary to win the future. I was just uh, on Twitter during the break and uh, reading a story over at the Blaze that uh, that that Trump is back to discussing the Khan family. Uh, that worked it went out so hey, well. I, yes. Yeah, that worked out so well. I mean, finally, Double finally down. some how, strategy. How? Finally, some sticking to a met. Yeah, this is that's such a bad idea. I think they should re-rack the Bill Clinton sexcapade strategy i already panned earlier this hour because that's that's how bad this one is this one nearly ended his campaign months ago five and a half months ago and he's still and he's still doubling down on the well if i was president with my rules of engagement he'd still be alive george w bush was president when captain Khan was killed not barack obama i don't know how many more times this guy has to be educated with this what do you think about Lou Dobbs saying about saying about Evan McMullen on Twitter? And I quote, I'm looking at the tweet. Look deeper. He's nothing but a globalist Romney Mormon mafia tool. Hashtag MAGA. Make America great again. Hashtag Trump train. That's Lou Dobbs from CNN Business tweeted that earlier tonight. I think that's... I think that's, um, that's a good tactic. I think that's a good place to go, do you think? Or? This is... Folks, folks... This is what happens when you do anything. You lift any finger to challenge the system. People lose their freaking minds. We need to get him in a room with Megyn Kelly. <laughs> Fireworks! <laughs> I... <laughs> I just... I, I didn't know what to say. I just had to shake my head and then realize, wait a minute, I'm on the radio, not on television. No one can hear me, can hear me doing that. I, I just... I... I Maga. I don't understand. You know, Where did this rhetoric come from? I and I'm. I don't know. Am Ma- I a shrinking violet? You know, Maga, Have I gone soft? Maga sounds like something a baby would say. You know, Maga. So maybe that's. I mean, maybe that's an explanation of where all of this level of intelligence comes from. Am I going soft? When did we start talking like this? When? When was this what we were? Do you guys know? When did this happen? I've been here every day for how many years? When did this start? Todd, do you know when this began? It's a lot longer ago than we care to admit. This is, I don't, I've never talked like this. I, I don't recall ever talking to other people in our movement like this or having them talk to me like this. This is like an out of body experience. It's like I'm hovering over my body on the gurney in the hospital ER watching them operate on me. You might be. I hope that I am! Hour three is next. You're listening to Steve Dace. You are now about to 
witness the strength of knowledge. This is Steve Dace. Raising a banner of bold colors, no pale pastels. People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. Our rights are inherent and essential, derived from our maker. That is liberty, and liberty will reign in America. This is Steve Dace. And we're back. Hour number three is underway here on the Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review. On the Salem Radio Network, still to come, Worldview Wednesday, we're going to conclude our series on why conservatives lost the era so that we can learn the lessons necessary in order to win the future. But first, it's time for three questions. We all have questions. Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? Who am I? A search and a question of identity. Why am I here? A question of meaning and purpose. Where am I going? question of destiny. Some better than others. What sort of morality or proto-morality would you expect to find in a chimpanzee troop? Injecting some levity into the demise of Western civilization. It's three questions on the Steve Day Show. It's that time of the night when our producer, Aaron, gets to set the tone. He gets to give the orders around here for a change, but we don't let it go to his head because he's got to answer the same questions that he asks of us. Beyond that, though, nothing is off limits. This is three questions, and Aaron, you may fire when ready. Thank you, Steve. Of course, a reminder, if you have a few questions uh, to submit or some ideas for a three questions question, you can uh, email them to Aaron at SteveDace.com. Several of you have done show already, like Steve Hevern whose uh, commentary uh, tonight was the basis for the first three questions question. He asks, for the Christian conservative, has it, this election, exposed that America is the idol? Are we willing to let go of the America we know and love and pick up our cross? Now, I think uh, we would probably agree that, yeah, I, that this this is nationalism. This has exposed the church, uh, some uh, factions of the church as being nationalism. Can we stipulate to that? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Uh, my question then, um, inspired from this, what are some more insidious but yet under the radar ways we might be in our churches committing idolatry of country? Because usually we think of it as people going out on TV, losing their souls, defending Donald Trump for the indefensible. What are some insidious ways that go under the radar? I don't know. I can think of three or four. Right, you start then. I, uh, because I'm trying to think of what's still under the radar. Right. And coming up with ways isn't the problem. Coming up with those that are still under the radar is, is where, I, where I'm still. Yeah, I mean, but you go ahead. Yeah, that's a good point. But there have been a few times, and maybe I'm, I'm kind of uh, hyperextending the, uh, you know, what's, what's actually serious and what's, what's not. But uh, there have been a couple of times. For instance, I was at this gigantic air show this summer in, um, in, in Wisconsin. And uh, I remember walking around and just seeing billions upon billions, trillions of dollars worth of just uh, uh, man's glory and man's um, uh, ability. And I, you know, I thought to myself, with the way the country is going, man, it's going to be a shame that maybe someday this won't be around. And I think that's maybe a little bit of at least letting yourself walk down when you have attachments to that, when you look at a cultural institution and think, man, I really would hate to see this go. I think that that may be. Walking down the road. I don't know. I think you're too tough on yourself. It depends on what the institution stands for. That's true. It's, it, I mean, let's not go nuts, okay? Nobody's joining. Anybody wants a con, wants to join a convent or a monastery, God bless you. Doors out over there. 
Let's not go crazy here. That, that might actually be a good, okay. good uh, place you to know, go. We're not good. <laughs> this isn't the this isn't the Anabaptist Hour with Quaker Joe <laughs> coming to you live from the Amish colony. Except we're not because we we forego all technology. That's not let's we're, let's not go nuts. All right. So I, I don't think I'm going nuts. I don't. I just, it, just <laughs> it, it, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Okay. I, I mean. It, there's a reason why we have pride in what this country has done and what it has accomplished, because it has taken a variant manifestation of our view, of our worldview, and implemented it into the world. And it's made the world a much better place than it was before that was done, Todd. I don't think we should... We Let's not become Brandon Houses, all right? Uh, well, you know, this actually wasn't founded on any Christian values, and it was, you know, the, no, that's, the I, Simon no, Templar I'm, I'm, Knights or somebody Freemasons who did this all, and uh, you're all, all a bunch of globalist cucks. Let's not go nuts. No, I, all I'm saying that any time that you walk t- down the road of, boy, I, I have a grip on something that I don't want to let go of, that's the road to idolatry. That's, that's the point that I'm it trying to make. It depends on what it is you're, what you're holding on to. I mean, if you're whole, if if you're walking down the road with your with a Bible in your hand in a in a in a culture that's trying to pry it away from mm-hmm. you, and I really don't want to let go of this. That's not an idol. That's a weapon. All right. Right. Okay. So I think it depends. A cu- cultural institution is different than the Bible. Depends on the cultural institution. I mean, if the cultural institution you're holding on to is, you know, um, you know, we used to we used to teach what it meant to be uniquely American in this cultural institution in this school. You know, I mean, um, I, I mentioned this in a Nefarious Plot. What is uh, uh, the, what was the, the original one of the original textbooks of the thirteen colonies where they used the Bible? The to, primer, yeah, the New England Primer. Mm-hmm. So if you're sitting, I mean, if, if you're a schoolmaster in 1850, no, I don't want to let go of the New England Primer. No, I don't want us to lose our heritage. I don't want us to lose what this country is about. I don't want to lose this cultural heritage. I don't think that's idolatry. That's that is that's well. I, I'll, I this is where I will pander to our, our our Catholic brother here. That's tradition you're holding on to. That that is, that is because that tradition has built something. It's made something. It has stood the test of time. You don't want to see the arrogance of some new progressive generation just decide that well it's it's outlived its usefulness. So I, I, I don't think the antidote to the idolatry that is gripping us is a sense of self-loathing, Todd, about who we are. I, don't, I think that's actually two sides of the same coin. I, I think, but I do share Aaron's concern when, when it's clear that the institution has lost its way. Here's where we get into idolatry. When it is clear the institution has, 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 has been given over, has lost its way, it is now working against you. I'll give you one example from the church. A, a buddy of mine is um, a guy who pastors one of the largest Lutheran churches in America. And him and I got into an argument a few years ago. It wasn't an argument, conversation, really. A few years ago when his, his Lutheran denomination, ELCA, went liberal. And he was adamant. I, we were having lunch one day. We're going to fight for this denomination. And I, I, it, far be it for me to discourage somebody from fighting over something. But I just looked at him and I said, Why? Why? Do you see the irony of a Lutheran fighting over an institution he thinks has lost its way? 
Guys know the punchline. Come on now. How's this one end, uh, right? 95. Anyone see the irony? Jesus. Let me go back to my Catholic friend again. See the irony in this one, my Catholic I'm friend. I'm familiar with it. The, uh, the Lutheran who said, the Lutheran says, we have to just stick, st- sit here and take it from these people because this is the, this is the tradition I grew up in. We can't abandon it. That's just, why? You're a Lutheran. Ta-da! Okay, now that's an example of when, I'm, when it's clear that the thing has given itself over, and it's an institution for institution's sake, that's where I think we cross into idolatry, Todd. This was a fantastic conversation, and I'm feeling both of you. I will spend a little bit more time on air inside. I'm feeling it, and I think this is might be where you're coming from a little bit, Aaron, but every, every mainstream major strain of American Christendom has way more to do, unfortunately, with Joel Olstein and the prosperity gospel than they should or they would care to admit. We are way too addicted to comfort in this country. Comfort is fine. I seek it for myself and my family and my families. But Agree the, go- on that. the gospel cannot be torn away the, from the, suffering. Jen, Jen, the gal who used to sit in your chair, used to say on this show, comfort is the bane of the Christian. Hey. Amen. I'm, I'm happy to now be sitting in this chair and uh, echoing her. Her presence is still alive. Understood. Uh, I'm going to skip over question two, go right to question three, which I wrote this afternoon before I saw Steve walk in here this evening with his Batman jersey on. So I'm back on my Batman uh, football jersey on. Yeah, yes. which, is, uh, which is appropriate. If you were stuck on an elevator for over 12 hours, would you rather be stuck with the Joker, Ra's al Ghul, or Scarecrow? Oh, <laughs> and don't say Ra's al Ghul. He's a ninja. He could just disappear right in front of your eyes. That would be creepy. I, I, it's Rosh. It's Ra- well. First of all, is it Ross or is it Raish? It's been called. I pronounced I both know. ways I over thought, the years. I thought in uh, Batman I, I Begins prefer- it was Ra's al Ghul. In this postmodern era, I'm going to go with the Raish pronunciation because I, I just think it sounds cooler. Okay. I'm going to choose Raish al Ghul because the other two will just mess with your mind, Joe. And in that confined space, yeah, I, don't, I don't know that I can handle that, Todd. Oh, okay. I don't know if I can handle that. Yeah, I think that's an easy one. Would you I like think to the see better, my mask? I think the better question, yeah. let's throw that out there. Then who would you choose over the Joker or the Scarecrow? I think I'd choose the Joker over the Scarecrow. Uh, one would make you laugh on the way to jacking you up. So, yeah, if I had to. But I'd prefer not to have to. I don't believe in flawed binary choices. <laughs> you want to see my scars? You want to see my mask? Or you want to know how I got these scars? You want to see my mask? You want to learn how to go invisible? That would be something. What was uh, question two? Uh, a favorite. This is. It would take too long to answer. We're gonna hold off till tomorrow for this. So it's it's two questions. It's two questions. Brought to you tonight. by two Corinthians tonight on the Steve Day Show. <laughs> tomorrow night it'll be three questions. Brought to you by three three Corinthians. You know it. Worldview Wednesday is next. You're listening to Steve Dace. Personally, believe elitism, Marxism, atheist, government intervention, secular humanist, liberals and conservatives, materialism, nihilism, U.S. Americans, Christian, globalist, socialist, democracy. Worldview, as the word suggests, is how we look at the world around us. How do we understand life as it hits us in the face? Libertarian, Tea Partier, the free market. Nobody is without a worldview. The only question is, is it a good one or a bad one? So it becomes the glasses, the spectacles, the filter through which they're actually seeing life. And the whole universe and the world and human life is understood through that lens. This is Steve Dace.
And this is Worldview Wednesday, your college philosophy class on the radio here on the Steve Day Show on the Salem Radio Network, powered by Conservative Review. And uh, we have been going through this series, which we will conclude tonight. Why conservatives lost? What did we lose? We lost this era. We have to admit, we have lost this era of engagement since the uh, twilight of the Reagan years. We have lost. So what lessons can we learn from this defeat in order to win the future? This is what we call in sports self-scouting. So after a disappointing effort by his team, a head coach, when he looks at the film, is not going to break down as much what the other team did to them, but what his team did wrong. So they don't do it again next week. Why? Because the next opponent is watching the film of how you got beat last week, what you did wrong, and going to see if they can exploit the exact same things. So we're trying to self-scout here, and we've been taking part in this seven-part series. If you missed the previous entries, you can get the podcasts at stevedace.com, The Big Picture. It's about the culture, stupid. We seek vindication, not victory. The parable of GOP betrayal. We're an industry, not a movement. Losing slower isn't pragmatic. It's just losing. As we get ready to go into the final entry tonight, gentlemen, what's been your thoughts on this series as a whole? Heading the, into the final installment, uh, the, the the parable uh, so far has been my my favorites um, my, my favorite chapter in this uh, in this series, and it's it's because it says so much um, not only about uh, the GOP itself but who we are and who we have let ourselves become as uh, people who have uh, either looked to the GOP for leadership on conservative issues or at least as a vehicle to drive conservative issues forward. It's, it says not, so, uh, not only a whole lot about the GOP and, and how conniving they have been, but also about us uh, as gullible as we've been. We need to be wise as serpents, harmless as, as doves. And I think that, um, that uh, story uh, earlier in um, this series, I think that's the one that stood out the most to me. Todd? There's a lot of things, but I, I need to ask you a question. To me, what stood out is the eclectic comprehensiveness of it. I mean, we went everywhere to there and back again, but the style of writing in each was very, very different. Like I said, you, you know, you're, you're telling parables. You're getting in some of them, you're getting very, very data driven. What would, what was your sense of vision quest from the beginning? Did you have it all laid out or did you just start and see where it took you? I actually did lay this series out before we wrote it. Uh, which, you know, I don't typically do, but I, I I like to wing things. But this one I laid out because I wanted to make sure that we, that the style by which these points were communicated was diverse so that something we could say during the course of this of this series might hit every single possible conservative that we can reach. Meaning some aspects of this will interest others, some and not others. Some people just will, are junkies and will love the whole thing. Most people, though, are from a place called normal. They, they are, they're not the junkies we are. So, you know, there might be one aspect of this that catches their attention and another does not. And the best way to cast the widest net as possible is to be very diverse and flexible in the way that you are attempting to to lay out the framework of this rather than putting it either all in a parable form, all in a story form, all in a lecture form, all in a research form, but to instead try and and diversify the, the method by which we we delivered this, we, at least what I hope is a very important message. It was good stuff. Uh, I mean, to go from, I mean, there's Batman analogies in there. That was my favorite one. That's the one where 
I think that was number three, if memory serves, as I helped you yes. uh, edit them as we went through We it. seek vindication, not victory, yes. Yes, uh, just, uh, and that's, I, I agree, We and it, it goes to, it speaks to what I think is so important starting on November 9th, I mean, we can start now for sure, and we, and we are, but challenging every single paradigm we have, finding out how to reach out to people in new ways with the same truth. But clearly, if we know not, if we haven't, fig- if we've figured anything out, it's that everything we've been doing brought us to this point. And this we're, point we're is a lose, joke. We're about to lose the popular vote for the sixth time in the last seven presidential elections. Is that bad? That yes, uh, uh, spo- fact trending. Check, fact check <laughs> true. Yes, so so clearly some paradigms need to be challenged and changed. That doesn't mean, by the way, we're changing and challenging the right paradigms or that we are even suggesting the right things. But I don't see how when you, when that is your record, I don't see how anybody can doubt that the that some paradigms somewhere need to be challenged and changed. The final installment of this series, we're going to talk about political parties. That political parties don't change anything. Protest movements do. Let me repeat that. Political parties don't change anything. Protest movements do. Now, if you're a younger conservative or if you're a younger non-conservative, you may frequently wonder why many people in in Todd Todd and I's age group or older are literally obsessed with finding the next Reagan on the right. Reagan did this, Reagan wouldn't do this. Reagan would do that, Reagan wouldn't do that. Now, Aaron, how old are you? 23. All right, so you're a grown man. You were not yet born when Reagan left office in January of 1989, correct? I wasn't born, no. I was negative four years old. I mean, you weren't even a gleam. Right. Right? I mean, they're, they're, they're this. we weren't even in the conception zone. Mm-hmm. You might have been disgust, okay? But, but I mean... Not likely. I wasn't planned for. But uh. You were not planned for. <laughs> so, so, I mean, you were literally in the vast, in the, in the vast wasteland of nothing. That's mm-hmm. where you were. Mm-hmm. All right? If you look at many of the soldiers we are sending off to fight Islamic radicalism all over the world, many of them weren't born yet. Many of the NFL players we are drafting into our fantasy football leagues weren't born yet or were barely you know, uh, barely potty trained when Reagan left office. Yet we are obsessing about recreating something called the Reagan Revolution. And and to them, if you're in this younger generation, you don't get it. It's like obsessing about finding Coolidge, if you even know who that is. I mean, do you guys believe Reagan is some figure or a legend from a bygone era? And he is, because he's from another century. <laughs> From a totally different century, in fact. And that is, if your generation, Aaron, knows them at all, right? right? How many people in your generation do you think, how common is is knowledge of Reagan? Not perceptions, but real knowledge. Oh, it's very limited. It's it's incredibly, I, you know, in fact, I'm not even sure I can answer that question um, because, I mean, he's not even talked about much in my generation. Why would he be? Because he's not a part of my generation. He's not a part of your generation. Now, you could say, well, he did. He was a very important president historically. True. Except we have conditioned your generation to accept as education many of the, the beliefs from the Soviet Union that Reagan helped to defeat. <laughs> right? So that, 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 is that bad? I think <laughs> that that's bad. bad. Okay. 
So, so what's wrong with obsessing about the next Reagan? We'll talk about that next. You're listening to Steve Dace. show is dedicated to bacon every day the steve day show finally something we can agree on bacon amen Amen. nice all right back here on a worldview wednesday here on the steve day show on the salem radio network powered by conservative review so we're finishing up our series why conservatives lost the era so we can learn the lessons necessary to win the future and we're talking the final lesson this week. Political parties don't change anything. Protest movements do. So we were just talking about our movement's obsession with all things Reagan. And, and I don't mean this to be sacrilegious. I loved Ronald Reagan. I admired Ronald Reagan. But year after year, decade after decade, this goes on. You know, how, you know how the liberal media likes to use the word gate after every American scandal? Now we even see it in sports. Mm-hmm. Deflate gate. You know why they do that? It's an homage to Watergate, which was their high, mar- high watermark as an industry. So just as they do this with, you know, gating everything, we do this on the right with Reaganizing everything. Because he was our high watermark. The problem, though, is Reagan was supposed to be the vanguard of a movement. He was not supposed to be both its birth and zenith simultaneously. And as a result of the fact that that wasn't the case, now we're in a position where conservatism for many of us, it feels naked and afraid without the confines of the Republican Party. And the problem with that is, even if the Republican Party were in good hands, and it's currently not, when your ideology is captive to a political party, that means the party is going to ultimately shape what is the ideology, rather than having the ideology shape the party. So year after year, decade after decade, we are looking for the next Reagan. Here's the other thing that happens year after year, decade after decade. We have the same factional arguments between, I don't know, pick terms, establishment and grassroots, moderates and conservatives, principles and pragmatism. You know how many times I've done these radio shows? Too many. Too many. For years, man. For years. Years of my life I can't get back. And the song remains the same, only the names change. And you know what's happening on the left? They are successfully completing their long march to the institutions we talked about a few weeks ago. They have a generational victory that is nearly complete now. And we are left with almost no public institutions that are still conserving the traditions, the values, the ideals that we believe made America exceptional in the first place. And we're still having all the same arguments within and about the GOP that those who swept Reagan into power five decades ago were having. I've talked about this before. Someone I greatly admire in our movement once said, well, Steve, you know what? We had all the same arguments you're having. He's 80. With all due respect, we're parents. Todd, do you want your kids wrestling with the same stuff you're wrestling with 50 years from now? No. You want them wrestling with all new stuff, right? 
I mean, I don't want the I don't want our kids having the same arguments we're having. Have your own arguments. It would mean it would uh, presuppose that nothing was learned. Ever. Exactly. If you're having the same arguments we're having, it means we didn't win or learn anything. Have your own arguments, unique to your era. Make your own mistakes as a generation. Don't keep making the same ones we're making. Now, the reason why we're in this position, I believe, is because we have forgotten one of history's tr- truest slogans. It's almost a cliche now. Those who have not learned from history are doomed to repeat it. If you look at the most successful reform movements of the last two centuries in America, abolition of slavery, women's suffrage, prohibition, civil rights for racial minorities, egalitarian feminism, the sexual revolution. Now, I I am not drawing a moral equivalency between these movements. I'm not saying they were all morally good. I'm drawing a, 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 a historical one. They all have something in common. Do you know what it was? These were protest movements before they were reform movements. Let me repeat that. They were protest movements before they were reform movements. It's been said that, and we talked about this in the show on Monday night with Bob Vanderplotz, one of the deciding factors of the civil rights struggles in the 60s is when white America in the Northeast and the Midwest was forced to watch what was happening to blacks in the South on their televisions every night at dinner, over the TV dinners, on the black and white with John Chancellor and Walter Cronkite, and their kids are looking at mom and dad like, what is this? Why are we watching this? You know, I was just cheering for Willie Mays and Hank Aaron and, uh, um, uh, you know, Wilt Chamberlain. Why are we doing this to people that look like this? I don't get this. And mom and dad got so sick of having the conversation, they called their congressman up and said, make that stop. And stop it eventually did. Because first there was the protest, and then there was the reform. This pattern repeats itself all throughout our history. We'll talk about that next. Listening to Steve Dace. It truly is a force of nature. One of the most powerful storms ever to hit land. The Steve Day Show. All right, marching on here, the final installment of this Worldview Wednesday series, Why Conservatives Lost the Era So We Can Learn the Lessons Necessary to Win the Future. Our final episode, Part 7. Political parties don't change things. Protest movements do. If you look at every major reform movement in our history as a people, they all began as protest movements. Abolition of slavery, slavery, prohibition, feminism, sexual revolution. All of these things began as protests. In fact, this is even true throughout Western history. If you look at Western civilization, the dawn of the Christian church, the Protestant Reformation, the founding of America. One of the major factors that moved Rome towards acceptance and then embracing of Christianity was the Christians' willingness to protest injustice by dying for their cause. According to tradition, the bishop of Rome himself, St. Peter, said, hey, crucify me upside down. Because he wasn't worthy of following in Christ's footsteps. What is that? 
That's a protest. That's what it is. Scores of nameless Christians willingly went to their deaths in the arena as well in protest of Roman barbarism. They chose death over denouncing their faith in Christ. Rome goes on, though, to become, after these protests, a central hub of Christianity, and it remains so to this day. Before there was a Protestant Reformation, there was a protest movement launched by this Augustinian Catholic monk named Martin Luther. He nailed 95 theses to a door asking for a disputation. What is a disputation? It's an argument. It's a protest. It's what it is. That protest movement that Luther spawned, the History Channel in 1999 ranked it, one of the three most important people of the millennium. Look at the Declaration of Independence. What came before that? The Boston Tea Party. What was the Boston Tea Party? It was a protest. It was an act of civil disobedience in defiance of British tyranny. See, protest movements, they plant the seed. They water the seed. They confront the status quo. They make human nature that prefers conflict avoidance. Let's face it, that's how most of us are wired. We pr- most of us uh, prefer conflict avoidance, but protest movements make that unavoidable. They, they force you to confront reality. Not as we would prefer things to be, but as they really are. They either expose for all to see the injustice that is being protested, or they expose the injustice, injustices, as we've seen with Black Lives Matters, the injustices being promoted by those doing the protesting. Either way, cultures are never the same as a result of protest movements. Folks, conservatives are not a protest movement. We are a partisan one. We are a partisan movement that is hemorrhaging influence within the Republican Party, our chosen partisan vehicle, vehicle as we speak. If we want to win the future, we must overcome our stigma against being a protest movement. A protest movement doesn't have to include sophomoric or thuggish tactics. Doesn't mean we all become disciples of Alinsky. I wrote a book, Rules for Patriots, as an antidote to that. How to be a protest movement without being a thug, basically. But how to be a protest, how to be ornery, but in a way that elevates and reinforces your principles doesn't violate them. The reality is actually the most in, the most long-term effective protest movements are not sophomoric or thuggish. I'll give you an example. A couple of years ago, the left was down in Texas. Remember, they were having the big pro-life fight down there. And the left was down there in Texas throwing feces and tampons at Texas legisl- legislators. You guys remember this? I do. I do. They were even chanting, Hail Satan. You guys remember that? I do. How many people did that went over to their side? Almost nobody. Their proxy... Wendy Davis was the Democrat nominee for governor that year. She was humiliated in that election. She went from being uh, abortion Barbie, New York Times future star. Does anybody know where Wendy Davis is today? No. On the other hand, now whether you agree with them or not, and I don't, but do you know whose protest recently has been very effective? Colin Kaepernick's has been. A simple kneel. As opposed to chanting, yelling, screaming, name-calling, he's just kneeling. And he got America's attention, for better or for worse. In fact, I would, I would say, gentlemen, agree or disagree with me on this, I think Colin Kaepernick has brought more sympathy to the Black Lives Matters message than all the nights they raised Ferguson combined. Yeah. 
you look at how how it's being covered, how it's being perceived uh, by the the, the target of or, or the people, the demographic they want to target and they want to activate. Yeah, I would wager that that's that's correct. So I, we have this stigma that protest means I'm the mobocracy, you know, uh, ripping my clothes off and, and chanting F-bombs at Scott Walker. That's not what it means. Or I'm throwing, you know, feces and tampons uh, like they like the Hail Satan crowd in Texas. No, that's not what it means. And when they do those things, they hurt their cause. They hinder it. But a protest movement, you know what a protest movement can look like? It can look like a 29-year-old seamstress who gets on a bus one day and she's just had it. She ain't doing this anymore. And when they tell her to sit in the back of the bus, you know what she says? No. Not go F yourself. Not your mama. No. That was the fi- that was the shot heard around the world of the civil rights movement in this country. The reality is for all of his antics, and Luther could be crass, he could be over the top. Maybe the most memorable thing he ever said. Here I stand, I can do no more. May God have mercy on my soul. No. No, I won't comply with that. I won't do it. You don't have to be a thug to be in a protest movement. You don't have to be a joke. You don't have to have sophomoric humor. It doesn't have to be Animal House. But if you're not willing to confront a culture with your message, you will not win that culture. Frankly, I think we need more leaders like Ben Shapiro, who was just on our show. They are willing to confront the status quo. They do it on their own turf. Unwilling to accept the left's flawed premises. And then they're capable of confronting progressivism forcefully and boldly, but they don't become like their seedier elements. First you win the argument, and then you win the vote. But it's protest movements that win arguments. Political parties don't. Listening to Steve Dace. He's got his finger on the button of truth. Put the finger down. It's Steve Dace. All right, we've come to the end of another show. And we have concluded this series on a Worldview Wednesday, which reminds me i got to come up with something to do for the next Worldview Wednesday. (laughs) But we have taken a look at why conservatives have lost so we can learn the lessons necessary to win the future as we take a step back now, now that it is complete. Our journey is complete. Gentlemen, what did you learn from this series? Well, I've been thinking about a lot of things, but... One thing that kept coming back to me is I, I, I feel the same way about Scott Walker as you feel about uh, Marco Rubio in terms of the invitational that this election could have been. And I know because you wrote mm-hmm. Rules for Patriots and how much you talked uh, about Scott Walker, in part you feel the same way. The, what he did in terms of his protest in Madison, Wisconsin uh, against uh, union abuses 
was an example uh, of what you're talking about. And the way he approaches these things, he's understated, kind of matter of fact. He's not a, a, a bomb thrower. If he had shown that ability from issue to issue to issue, I think this thing would have been his in a cakewalk. But instantly he showed that it wasn't, that he was a one-trick pony. And having grown up in Madison, Wisconsin, and gone to the University of Wisconsin, I know what he walked to. But he said, I don't care. He said, do your worst. We're going to follow through on this. And he won. If only we would learn from those examples Hmm. and follow through on them. We would have been in a far different place right now. But if 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 Scott Walker can't do it, and we've seen the level of sellouts that he did, I, and we saw how many politicians are clearly made more in that mold, even when they get a victory, they don't know what it means. Mm-hmm. Well, it's going to be a long forty years in the desert, I'm afraid. Aaron, not if I have anything to say about it. Amen. I may not now. I may not. But I'm going to do the best I can do. Aaron. We need to do a better job of distinguishing between what is a movement and what is a scam. Because all too often we, I think, confuse those two things. The LGBTQ, the the rainbow jihad, that, that's a movement. You now, bet it is. Um, it's the most powerful movement in America right it, now. It, and you know why it's a movement? Church included. You know why, why it's a movement? Because they freaking move things. Yes. The pro-life movement, what have we moved? Conservative movement, whatever the heck that was, what have we moved? Not a damn thing. So we like, to, we like to tack on this whole movement thing to whatever issue or pet issue that we have. More often than not, though, it seems like it's a scam. Even, even the Black Lives Matters thing and, and uh, the, the people leave it, leading the civil rights movement nowadays, that, that's a scam. Even though it grew out of something that was righteous, it's still a scam. We need to have discernment and discrimination, the good, the good kind of discrimination, the real discrimination. That, uh, that that used to be uh, known. We have to have that in, in, um, in conservative circles going forward. So I know a lot of you are going to be like, well, Steve, then how do we win? That is a conversation we will have in the future. But first, first, you got to this this game that we're losing now needs to go final. And then we need to look at the box score because that will tell us a lot about what to do going forward. John three seventeen. Listening to Steve Dace.